guys, welcome back to another episode of Straight Up, the pop culture podcast covering all things fame, celebrity, TV, books, film. What else am I missing? Us, our own lives. Us journalist Kathleen and Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start with a bit of celeb trivia. We love it. We love it. Okay, so Dua Lipa's new boyfriend, Callum Turner. <gasps> Yay, I wanted to discuss. What do we think? So I have wanted to get into this since she brought him to the Grammys after party earlier this week. The grand unveiling. The hard launch. The hard launch. I'd seen a soft launch at a minor event last month. Yes, I think she went to one of his premieres. And obviously they've been papped holding hands in the street and stuff. Yes. He is currently starring in Spielberg's big new Apple TV show, Masters of the Air, which I really want to see that, about the uh, bombing squadron in World War II. So we should say he's the 33-year-old British actor. You might recognise him from... I mean, his biggest hitter is the Fantastic Beasts franchise. He plays Theseus, the brother of Newt Scamander, who's Mm -hmm. obviously played by Eddie Redmayne. Never seen Fantastic Beasts. Have you not? No. I mean, they're not a patch on the... The no, OG HP series, exactly. but they're quite fun. Yeah. Mads think... Mikkelsen's quite great in them. Oh, I do love him. Yeah. So Callum Turner started his career as a model. You he can see in... that with the cheekbones. You absolutely can. He's a very attractive man, but it, dare I say it in a slightly non-conventional way. So like quite a modelly way. Yes. He does give model vibes. He was in campaigns for companies like Next and Reebok. And his first acting role was actually a short student film, as most actors, I think, do start. Yes. Does he remind us a little of one of her first boyfriends, Isaac Carew? I know what you're going for there. The, the Brit gentleman. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the cheekbones. Yes. But I would say Isaac's got that more classic Hollywood look. He does. Than Callum Turner. The thing is, so guys, if you don't know, by the way, Isaac Carew is a very well-known chef. He went out with Dua Lipa for quite a few years as her career really took off. So he was kind of everywhere. She brought him to the Met Ball one year. Right. Do you remember yeah. when she was dressed by Versace and she yes. had like the really big ponytail? He was her date. So everyone was very much all eyes on them as quite a serious couple. Mm. But they broke up very soon after that. I wonder what- when we were at GQ, he was on a GQ hype cover and the headline was Mr. Dua Lipa. Oh. And he went apeshit. He was really pissed off. So I can see why. Yeah. Because I think if the roles were reversed, gender-wise, to call someone like Miss, whatever her partner's name was, would be so deeply misogynistic. It would be terrible. It's like how my Jama always used to say she hated being known as Stormzy's girlfriend because you're always in their shadow. So I can see why it's kind of problematic because you're doing it in a way that wouldn't be appropriate if the yeah. tables were turned. And also he was like hard grafting his own independent cooking like career. Sorry, cooking as in he wanted to be, he was a chef. He is yeah, a chef. he's a chef. He's a properly yeah. like classically trained chef. Yeah. Is so there such thing as classically training? Yes, there is. It's like, <laughs> like Leeds style. Yeah. I'm imagining chefs trilling in a yeah. posh kitchen. Um, yeah, so I mean, it wasn't like he was literally her handbag like trying to get a leg up. However, however, the trajectory of his career since. Sorry, I literally sound evil laughing. Uh, I don't mean it in that way. I'm just, I guess, because I'm touching on something slightly awkward. I wouldn't say that he's gone from strength to strength in terms of being a globally recognized food name. Some of his videos came up in my TikTok the other day and they look nice, but they're definitely not moving the needle online. I think there are just this fierce competition when it comes to Instagram chefs, TikTok chefs. I have to say, Cathers, these moth cocktails are going down a treat. Aren't they? I love a canned moth cocktail. And this little Valentine's Day package of three of the big hitters is a fabulous present. It objectively. Is a, yes, a little Valentine's Day present for our friendship. 
I always, always get myself moss margaritas in Kings Cross Station whenever I'm getting a train. Your tinnies. I love a tinny. And my favorite tinny has got to be actually the pina colada, the moss pina colada. Guys, stock up for summer. So I've not tried that yet, but it's in this gorgeous little Valentine's Day kit. I'm currently slurping on an espresso martini and it is a good one. That's for sure. It's definitely helping me record is what I will say. Just love Moth, love the branding, love the drinks. Go check them out, guys. If you haven't heard of them, you surely have. They serve them everywhere. I think they even stock in Waitrose. They do. That's where I get them at King's Cross. Yeah. So go have a look. They're completely delicious. Anyway, so back to Callum Turner. So Callum was in several different things throughout the noughties. In 2012, he was in a ITV drama with Andrew Scott and Martin Clunes, The Town. In 2013, he was in a historical fiction television series. He's also been in BBC One's Ripper Street. The Capture, my one of my fave shows. Yes. The last few years. And that's more recent, isn't it, The Capture? So he was born and raised in Chelsea. Do we think Lol. he is posh? Well, yeah. Since he was, <laughs> he was raised in Chelsea and his middle name is Robiliard... I'm probably saying that wrong. Yes, his mother chose that as his middle name based on a poet friend, David Robiliard, who died two years before Turner was born. This friend is clearly a well-known poet because he has his literal own Wikipedia page. So if they were their family friends, I'm going to wager that they're well-connected people. Robiliard. To be fair, that's obviously rubbish. That's such conjecture from me there. But yeah, it's giving posh boy. There is, um, I'm going to talk about it later, but Leo Woodall who when I talk about one day, I will bring up, but also a posh boy who puts on a little bit of a twang, if you know what I mean. I mean, that's like every major actor from the UK. It's a big issue, isn't it? As you've touched on in previous episodes, most actors have been privately educated and this is an issue. There's a massive barrier to entry for the working class. So most actors are from the upper echelons. But they do put on a kind of, well, with Leo Whittle, it feels like he's putting on a bit of a geezer voice, like a bit of a cockney twang that I thought was only specific to his White Lotus character. But it's the same in one day. But actually, it's the same in yeah. one day and also his interviews. So let's hope Dua Lipa has a lovely time with Callum. I didn't realise how that she'd even broken up with her French guy. That was actually quite The director, recent. yes. Yeah. They looked very good together, I must say. Very arty and kind of smoky. Fun fact about Callum Turner, he lives in Stockwell. Is that a bit dumb of me to out where he lives? No, I think that's fine. Yeah. Basically, my friend lives around there and she always sees him around the Canton Arms. Very nice pub. Exceptional pub. Very great food. Great pie. Really, really great Sunday roast as well. Yeah. If any South Londoners out there like us. So don't go and stalk him locally, but just to be aware. Quite a lot of celebs live in Stockwell. Joanna Lumley. Oh. I think Boris Johnson did for a while, if he counts as a celeb. I mean, Dua Lipa obviously has a crazy schedule, but she's been in support of Callum at his various work events. I think we said this, but he went. she went to the premiere of Masters of Air. And in a very cute video obtained by TMZ, they were shown slow dancing behind a partially open door at an after party for the event. Cute. All wow. loved up. Do we know what they were slow dancing to? I'm afraid I can't disclose that information. I don't think I've ever slow danced with anyone. Have you? Yeah, probably when I was like 16. You know, like discos. No, I never did. The romance was actually confirmed when they had a bit of a PDA 
after leaving the LA hotspot sushi park. Have you seen all the coverage of sushi park yes, at the moment? Yes. So guys, if you don't know, sushi park is this tiny little sushi restaurant that's literally within like a shopping boulevard. It looks so unassuming. I think it was uh, the face or days did quite a funny, like deep dive into the restaurant in the last couple of weeks. And the paparazzi photograph them making out briefly in front of the restaurant. Well, Kath, I was about to say how interesting, but we are listeners on an interesting band because we, we keep are. saying it to each other. So we're, we've looked up synonyms for interesting. So let me hit you with one now. That is an enchanting piece of information, Kathleen. <laughs> You're very welcome. Onwards. Onwards with today's episode. Let's talk about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. One of the best things I've seen in a while. Same. Loved it. Very binge worthy. So guys, if you don't know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is a brand new series on Amazon Prime. It is eight episodes and it is, as the name would suggest, based on the original 2005 film, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which very famously is where Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie got together. So the original Mr. and Mrs. Smith was a action comedy film that was about a bored upper middle class married couple who were surprised to learn that they are in fact both assassins belonging to competing agencies and that they've both been assigned to kill each other. One of the framing devices are these therapy sessions, which this new Mr. and Mrs. Smith massively kind of explodes as a concept. So this new Mr. and Mrs. Smith is based on the same basic concept, but really, really expanding it. It starts with John and Jane Smith, who are Donald Glover and Maya Erskine, respectively, becoming secret agents for a mysterious organization. It feels quite dystopian. They're typing in their answers in this interview on a kind of screen, and they both are set up in an arranged marriage as part of this deployment, and their work together puts both their skills as spies and their relationship to the test. The two have to deal with these various missions while also navigating... A relationship. And it's at its core, really, a show about relationships, yes. not about espionage, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. And it's created by Donald Glover, isn't it? Which I feel like if anyone is a fan of Atlanta, the humour is all over it. Like, it's very much a Donald Glover production. Definitely. One of the directors from Atlanta was brought on to be the main oh. showrunner, writer and director. So Francesca Sloan. It's got like a warm and earthy feel rather than like a very slick, serious feel. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And then some very funny kind of surreal moments of humour. Like even the therapy sessions, I feel, could have been like a mini Atlanta episode. I actually personally never really got into Atlanta. So I wouldn't say that this is a show that you have to have loved Atlanta to watch. Sarah Paulson actually plays the therapist that you just mentioned. It's got like an incredible run of cameos. Sharon Horgan, our face. Sharon Horgan, Paul Dano, Parker Posey, Alexander Skarsgård. Like the cast is crazy. Oh, Michaela Cole. Yeah. Really amazing, amazing cast. Most people do actually know this if you've looked into the show at all, but originally it was meant to be co-written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She was brought on by Donald Glover, not only as as the lead actress playing Mrs. Smith, but also a writer. However, six months into the project, Phoebe left because of creative differences. I don't think it was under a dark cloud. It's been very much covered as an amicable split. Phoebe actually said in an interview, sometimes like marriages, things just don't work out. They just had different visions for the projects. And I think where Phoebe would have gone more down the killing eve route almost cartoonish in its slickness yeah that's the style this slick espionage drama mr and mrs smith has that earthy real feel yes of atlanta which you can totally see wouldn't work for phoebe yeah what the hell is phoebe waterbridge doing she has this massive deal with amazon but has not produced anything for them in like two to three years yeah she's kind of 
quite off radar generally these days, isn't she? Yeah, I don't know what. Like, I think she's working out hard behind the scenes. Yes. Anyway, you see this evolution of the couple. So played by Donald Glover and Maya Erskine, John and Jane. They evolve from strangers to colleagues to lovers. And this sense in the show is that you're swept up in the ebbs and flows of a couple's burgeoning relationship. Like even the titles, they'll be like first date. Do you want kids? One of them's called first vacation. Like they're definitely playing with the idea of a relationship evolving, just using the kind of espionage as the backdrop. What I really liked about their relationship is it really flips stereotypes. So it's like Donald Glover's character who wants the kids. Yeah. And Maya Erskine's character is like the cold heart, like emotionally unavailable. Person. She's really great. So I'd only ever seen her in Pen15, which is that kind of coming yeah. of age comedy drama where she played her 13-year-old self. So with fellow comedian Anna Conkle, they play themselves as teenage outcasts, but as adults, and the rest of the cast was teenage. Oh, interesting. It was really popular at the time. In fact, Mark Ronson recommended it to me when I asked him once about his favourite TV show. He was like, I just love this. So Maya was known on the comedy circuit, but she's quite an unlikely pick for a big, glossy blockbuster like this, which I think makes it all the more brilliant, doesn't it? Yes, she's brilliant. She is so good. Actually, I'd, I'd only ever heard her before. She voices the main samurai in Blue-Eyed Samurai on Netflix, which is oh, the big anime, which is so good, by the way. I don't even like anime. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. It's amazing. It's, did you love it? I did, but again, I trailed off towards the end. Oh. Because it's just very long. It is. Lots yeah. of episodes. Yeah. I did love it, though. Okay, so what would you give Mr. and Mrs. Smith out of 10? How much did you like it? And did you think it was better than the original? Yes, definitely better than the original. Yeah, I think so as well. I, think that's, I don't think anyone thought the original was that great. Like, I think part of the reason that the original did really well was because of the chemistry and the, mm. uh, you know, the meta story around Angelina and Brad. I did have it on DVD, however, when I was younger. But yes, it was a great conceit. However, there's only so much you can do with that in two hours anyway. And the, what's interesting about Mr. and Mrs. Smith is it's eight episodes. They're each like an hour long. It's kind of like three films in one. I think it's very clever. And very different. Yes, I like also, I really loved all the missions. It's fun to see them go to like far flung places. And oh yeah, and you have to do that as part of a glossy spy thriller. So they go to the Dolomites in Italy, they're skiing there. It's like that great rich person property porn hotel kind of stuff that you want as yes. part of a glossy espionage thriller. Exactly. And the Lake Como. Yeah. You have to have a big boat chase like in a spy film. And um, also their, like, Pierre-Terre, their uh, uh, New York apartment is also just so fucking gorgeous. Yeah, it's like this gorgeous, amazing brownstone. God, can anyone make a TV show these days without having property porn? Are you literally, like, doomed to fail if it doesn't look nice? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Well, on the topic of that property porn, you know, we've been discussing expats, the Nicole Kidman drama recently. Maya Erskine as mentioned in a recent Guardian interview, has actually just turned in an early draft of a script based on Leila Samani's book, Lullaby, which obviously we both loved. I interviewed her. Yeah. It was published in the US as The Perfect Nanny, by the way, if you're a US hun. And she's slated to star alongside Nicole Kidman in it. So for people that don't know, uh, Lullaby is about a nanny who kills the two kids she was looking after. That's not a spoiler. It's on the very first page and it's inspired by a real life crime. I think happened in France because Leila Samani's French, French Moroccan. Yeah. Really good book. One thing the Guardian interview covers, which I think is quite relevant here, is how people tend to have a dislike of remakes. So whilst Mm. remakes and sequels are such perfect Hollywood fodder, audiences can be a little bit 
bristly about them. So when a teaser for the series dropped late last year, there was a lot of online harumphing about what many assumed was just a straight remake of the film, prompting Francesca Sloan, who's the co-writer, to pen an open letter in defense of the project. In it, she noted how she and Donald Glover had asked each other, what would a series feel like if our heroes weren't the two most beautiful people on the planet, but instead were two lonely people, two underdogs wanting more from life than they currently had? Yes, loneliness is a big theme. They constantly say that of each other. That's why they both even sign up for the job in the first place, like a secretive weird job where you have to lose your identity and be put into a sham marriage and live in this entire ready-built life. They both take that on because they haven't got anything else going on, essentially. And you definitely get the sense that they're both, while they're not spies, they're kind of field operatives. Like they both had relevant professional experience that makes them suitable for this job yes i think um john smith said he he was the the first drones in afghanistan i also read a really good interview with francesca sloan in the hollywood reporter so it's titled how francesca sloan reimagined a more relatable mr and mrs smith and she talks about the character study side of the show and how that was the most important thing to her and donald so she said you still want to make sure you're delivering on the promise of the show but we went in such a different direction with it that i felt like we owed the audience some spy fun So she says that for her and for Donald, the sort of magic is in the deeply human moments. And Mm. that reminded me, my favorite scene, I would say maybe of the series in terms of capturing intimacy and having real charm and charisma, the kind that you said made Atlanta so popular is the fart scene on the train. Oh, yes. When she gets out of bed to go to the bathroom and and he's like, oh, you're blatantly going to fart. And she's like... No, I'm not. Yeah. And it's just really sweet. I know. I literally wanted to be like to Iss, like, oh, it's so accurate. Without revealing that I have sometimes also needed You've to. You've been holding in farts for 10 yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> and then also she doesn't even, oh no, she does do it secretly. She does. No, she farts. It's a like silent a silent one, yeah. And he's like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I just love Donald Glover. He is one of those men that is somehow like really in his feminine, but super masculine. He's quite traditional but also very modern I don't know he's one of these real chameleons I can also his character loving his like meditation and yoga and stuff I can imagine Donald Glover also really leaning into that as a person definitely got spiritual vibes yes and just the way that they purposely in the same vein set up scenes that feel really incongruous so one minute they're like pottering around a farmer's market getting their coffees and the next, they're literally trying to, like, blow something up. Yes. And the their, their humour and their conversations are so random. Like, you can't... Like, they feel so real because of how random they are. Like, the, yes. the farmer's market, like, prank that Maya Eskin's character plays on Donald Glover's. Oh, that is so good. Yeah. Do you know that his mother in the show is his real mum? <gasps> I did not know how that. How cute is that? Oh, my God, that is so cute. Isn't it? Did you believe in their chemistry? Very much. Same. I think without it, the show wouldn't have worked. That was actually integral. And what I found really interesting about the... What you found very beguiling. What I found very beguiling. (laughs) I will catch myself. Was... Well, is beguiling, would beguiling even be the right term there? I don't know. So one thing they, they say in the Guardian piece as well is that Maya Erskine never even did a chemistry read with Donald Glover because everything happened with Phoebe Waller-Bridge dropping out. It got so late in the day that they had to just run with Maya, even though they'd never put her and Donald in the same room. Fascinating. So lucky it worked. Yes. It worked fabulously. You genuinely believe they're a real couple, don't you? Absolutely. I am one episode until the end and I desperately hope that they stay together. 
I mean, it's fun. It's fast. It's witty. One thing I will say is that it ends on a massive cliffhanger. <gasps> so there's going to be a season two? I think so, yeah. Yay! And Francesca Sloane says that in her Hollywood Reporter piece. Like, season two is on the cards. Yes, I'm so pleased. I okay. know. And it would be odd to be its own limited series, I think, because it definitely has legs to go much further. Donald Glover is just so clever. And Francesca, really sorry, but I know more about Donald. Guys, by the way, if you haven't put two and two together, Donald Glover is also the musician Childish Gambino. Yes, of the big hit Redbone. And this is America. Yep. He is a proper creative multi-hyphenate. He's one of these geniuses that's good at everything that he touches, basically. Do you know as well, his brother was on, his brother worked on the show, Stephen Glover. Yes, I've heard him, and he's worked on Atlanta as well. Exactly. And they were actually the only two men in the room. So Donald felt quite strongly that he wanted to have an all-women writing room. So he was in a Capital Extra interview the other day and he explained it as, we just want this show to have a woman's perspective, not even story-wise, but just the gaze. I felt like the gaze would be cool. It helped the show, especially with things being sexual. So he didn't want it to just have women in the writing room to like tick the box of like, we're a female production. He said he really didn't care about that. He wanted the sex to feel that it was from a woman's perspective. He actually referenced a time on set in Atlanta where he recalls a director friend, Amy, asking him, do you want this to be hot to men or women? And he said, ever since then, he's had that kind of stuck in his mind. It's a good question to always ask yourself. He says, do you want... So he, And the way he reads that dynamic is he said, it's, I'm a part of this feeling rather than like I'm doing it or getting done to. He, that's yeah. how he argues that the female gaze comes through cinematography. That's such a good point. Trying, well, actually, I should ask, we should ask our respective boyfriends whether they found it hot. I found it hot. Yeah. And it's more about the feeling than the action. So shooting from far away through a door and the, the suggested rather yeah. than the obvious. And the buildup of sexual tension yeah. is, is, is a bit, it's not just let's get naked ASAP, which I think maybe if it was a male gaze, it, it would might be, be more like that. Yeah. Kathas, am I right in thinking you have not yet sorted your Valentine's Day plans? You would be correct, my love, which is slightly embarrassing, but I can't be the only one. There must be some other last minute honeys listening. Myself included, but don't worry, guys. Very good news. There is some much needed inspo over on the Yonder app. It has some amazing V-Day offers across gifts and dining for couples or BFFs who want to spend some quality time together. Let's hear them. Okay, Valentine's Day is on a Wednesday. I won't be going out midweek. But I'm going to go for a luxury at-home dining experience with Dispatch, which offers next-level meal kits from some of London's top restaurants, including St. John, Cafe Marana and Babala. Stunning. Can you use your Yonder points for this? Yes, babe. I've got 70 quid's worth of points left. So I think because the kits cost between 55 and 125, depending on the restaurant, I can actually cover the whole meal. That is literally ideal. What a treat. Guys, by the way, for anyone that doesn't know, Yonder is an incredible lifestyle credit card that allows you to collect points as you spend. These points are then redeemable at a monthly changing selection of gorgeous Yonder partners from classes at some of London's top fitness studios to the buzziest restaurants and bars, travel experiences, online shopping and more. Talking of online shopping, Yonder has some fab Valentine's Day gifting options as well. Fresh flowers from Delivery Service Flower Box and gorgeous pyjamas from Desmond and Depsy, which I've always wanted. Oh yeah, I know the ones you mean. Yeah. Let's hope Iss is listening and he can use his own Yonder points to get you a pair. Yes. Thanks as ever to our partner Yonder. Get your first month free and 10,000 points when you join, then £15 a month, or give their free membership a go and see if it's right for you. Please do make sure you borrow responsibly. T's and C's apply. Rep 66.7% APR variable. Another thing that Maya says in her Guardian interview is that the first sex scene that they shot together was the first time 
that they were sort of intimate together because they hadn't done a chemistry read. So they're there trying to shoot this sex scene with the intimacy coordinator on set, having never been in that situation at all with one another, which is unusual on a production like this. Mm. But it actually worked really well because it played into the awkwardness and like the tenderness of the scene because they genuinely did feel awkward. Yes, I actually remember saying to Is when the first sex scene happened, it was like, wow, that was a chaotic sex scene and it felt felt so realistic. That's real. It's it's not that sexy. All the the clothes don't come off properly and it's like, uh, uh, uh," and like a lot of like awkward grunting as you try and get your clothes (laughs) off. It was good. Actually, and I did think, um, I don't know if this is more Donald Glover just being a very... A modern man or it's that feminine writing but I thought Donald Glover's character was so multi-layered and interesting really was it totally deconstructs masculine stereotypes while also still presenting as quite masculine in yes. lots of conventional ways yes God, loved he's- it He's just a genius. He even says as well I don't like remakes the only way that I decided I would do this is because I felt the original left a lot in the air The original just yeah you're right just seems so empty and hollow now in comparison none of the none of the energy or warmth speaking of our recent favorite lady who angelina jolie was originally meant to be played by nicole kidman gosh i did read that somewhere actually yeah so random really isn't it yes because then brad pitt wanted to drop out because he didn't want to do it without nicole but then when he found out it was angelina He's like, strap me back in urgently. I think the director had always had this vision of it being like about the chemistry between two big Hollywood leads. Apparently he considered Will Smith and Catherine Zeta-Jones as the leads. They also considered Johnny Depp and Kate Blanchett. I mean, can you imagine a Johnny Depp and Kate Blanchett? That would be like a very different Mr. and Mrs. Smith. An art house. Yeah. A Woody Allen style Mr. and Mrs. Smith. She would dominate him have to say not sure that would be fair yeah I was actually going back on a timeline of Brad and Angelina's relationship for this because the way that it all came about and just how the media played up their chemistry and relationship Mm. was quite wild like they have admitted that they fell in love on set at Mr and Mrs Smith which of course was when Brad was still married to Jennifer Aniston Hazards of the job yeah so in the January of 2005 rumours had already been swirling about Mr and Mrs Smith Uh, Jennifer and Brad announced their separation after five years of marriage. By July, W Magazine ran a whole extensive spread titled Domestic Bliss of Angelina and Brad. So the first image was them sat at a kind of idyllic family suburban dinner table with all these mini kids, like mini Brad Pitts around. Then there was all these photos clearly playing up to the Mr. and Mrs. Smith thing. But it was like, it was very sensual. It was pretty obvious that they're a couple like the images literally depict them as a couple and the whole all the like team Jen fans were outraged Jen even said in interview later later on that Brad had a sensitivity chip missing in doing that spread basically came out that the pictures had been shot in March so the pictures had been shot before Jen had even filed for divorce so what's quite wild and is covered in the interview that Jen did where she called it a missing sensitivity chip with Vanity Fair is that this entire shoot was actually conceptualized by brad pitt not the magazine as well which is quite bizarre this domestic bliss shoot 
So I'll read a a quote that's prefacing the article. The W feature, which was entitled Domestic Bliss, couldn't be blamed on the paparazzi. Not only did Pitt conceptualise it, but he retained the international rights, so he actually profited from it. Aniston's eyes widen in surprise when I mention that last fact, and she grimaces. I didn't know that, she says, but she refuses to indulge herself in an angry reaction. Is it odd timing? Yeah, but it's not my life, she says. He makes his choices. He can do whatever. We're divorced, and you can see why. She shakes her head in exasperation. I can also imagine Brad having absolutely no clue why people would be appalled by it, she adds. Brad is not mean-spirited. He would never intentionally try to rub something in my face. In hindsight, I can see him going, oh, I can see that was inconsiderate, but I know Brad. Brad would say, that's art. Well, actually, having read that absolutely preposterously pretentious GQ interview between Brad Pitt and Natessa Mosfeg, I can so imagine him saying that. You know, when he makes his ceramic candlesticks and goes on about Yes, art. and his dreams. Yeah. Like he, but what's interesting, even about the tableau in this domestic bliss spread is that it goes from a kind of beautiful family idyllic setting children splashing in the pool parents dancing in the living room to devolving into this like darker alcohol fueled and abusive storyline which now with more than 15 years of hindsight is basically what Angelina has alleged about Brad in real life remember Mm. the whole incident with the plane yes of course where he was like abusive and violent towards her and the kids also Pax one of their adopted children actually did this whole Instagram post last year about how dare Brad say anything about Father's Day he's been the shittest dad ever and he's literally a terrible person yeah and they've got they've still got that ongoing feud about the winery don't they or the vineyard Miraval yeah. yeah so all this to say I don't think you can even separate the kind of iconicness and the popularity of the first film from the Brad and Angelina, from Brangelina. They're intertwined. Whereas this has been detoxified. Yes. Donald Glover, is he, are Maya Erskine and Donald Glover in independent relationships? Or might we see, I mean, God, the curse of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You wouldn't, you would certainly not trust that relationship if it started happening in real life, would you? You'd be like, get away from me. (laughs) Maya recently had a baby and is married to another actor. Oh, thank God. I actually don't know about Donald's romantic status i feel like he's one of those super private people i can't imagine him as a leave your husband for me baby type of man but oh maybe, god no maybe i'm just seeing his nice guy image oh well, there we go top headline from the independent donald glover reveals he got married during the making of mr and mrs smith with wife michelle white well that's very interesting apparently rumors have long surrounded the actor's relationship status with his partner of eight years with fans speculating as to whether the couple are married he's 40 she's 34 they were first spotted together in january 2016 on vacation in hawaii and they welcomed their first child legend later that year and they've since had two more sons drake and donald legend drake and donald is an interesting baby name line up sorry they've had two sons called drake and donald Yes, and their first child <laughs> was Legend. So their three children are called Legend, Drake and Donald. That's it. They're only funny together. Yeah. Independently, I'm they're sure fine. they're fine. And you're like, oh, Donald Jr., that's classic. But together with Drake and Legend? It's funny. It's it a is funny, funny. lineup. Well, I wish them all the best. He actually said that he partially got married because of the show. To ensure him against the Brangelina <laughs> curse. <laughs> Maybe. He was asked whether the show's realistically romantic portrayal of marriage made the actors more optimistic about the institution, and Glover responded, yeah, I do, actually. We both got married to our partners, respectively, says Erskine. Donald got married during the show, and I got married right after the show, so it definitely had an impact on us. Well, that is very good news. Glover, who is famously protective of his private life, added, I love my marriage because I never had rose-coloured glasses about it. My dad was always like, oh, marriage is really hard work. It was never like, oh, you're supposed to be happy all the time. 
Yeah. Well, you definitely get a sense of that running through the show. You do. Also, this has reminded me because I'm just looking at Google pictures of him now and not enjoying some of his outfits. But his outfits on the show are really very oh, good. They're very good. Very swanky. When he wears that sort of vest with a leather jacket, like a tailored leather jacket over it, he looks so great. And his all white ensemble near the yes. end. Yes. Yeah. And he wears Gucci to the. Uh, God, that was weird. Sorry, but if you have watched it, the scene where they have to do some furry role play. That was really bizarre. He's also a very famous actor. Yes, and his he name is. is now escaping me. He was in, he was in Severance, Court. which I really liked. Yes, and he was also in the Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, no, sorry. He was also in the Riz Ahmed thriller. Night, the night of night of i loved the night of i think i'm gonna to have to go back and watch that again you know because it was such a while yes, ago now he was the lawyer with pariasis and i only say that because that was a big part of the storyline was that he suffered from pariasis oh john Tarato. he has been in lots of things over 60 films in fact and he works frequently with the quone brothers adam sandler and spike lee so you'll recognize him basically all this to say you will know that face it does also make me think that donald glover clearly has a lot of friends in Hollywood. Oh, he definitely does. He's, he's always well name-dropping friends. Yeah. That's how he even found out about the IP for Mr. and Mrs. Smith being up for grabs. Everyone loves him. He's definitely a darling of Hollywood, isn't he? He is. Yay to Donald. Like <laughs> <laughs> that like last week? We're like, go Paul, go Andrew, times two. That's kind of what I was going Yay, for. Donald. Yay, Donald. Yay, Donald. We're here <laughs> to support the Donmeister. So let's support some more uh, men. (laughs) (laughs) As a women's slanted podcast, it's important that we shout out all the most important men. It is. American Fiction is a film of this year. Yes, and I haven't seen it yet. So can you tell me everything? Fucking good. So good. Uh, It's going to sweep up a lot of Oscars, I hope. So American Fiction is directed by Cord Jefferson, adapted from Percival Everett's 2001 novel, Erasure. He is a black American writer and Erasure was a satire of the publishing industry, which was a huge hit when it was released. All about how the publishing industry exploits black writers for trauma porn, um, their struggle, I guess. It's set in Boston, USA, and follows the life of Thelonious Ellison, known as Monk, a disillusioned black intellectual whose novels are very high-minded, but have all failed commercially. He's confronted by the world success of a novel by a fellow black female writer called We Lives in the Ghetto, and is so appalled by like how basic and stereotypical it is, pandering to like the white publishing gaze and the industry's obsession with black trauma, that he decides one night, just drinking whiskey, to write what he describes as a ghetto novel as a joke. And he tells his agent, it's got deadbeat dads, rappers crack, they'll love it. So he sends it in and just as a complete joke, he thinks it's unpublishable, so does his agent. But his agent calls him back a few days later and is like, they want to offer you quarter, uh, three quarters of a million dollars. It's going to be a massive, massive hit. And it goes on to become like the darling of the literary awards circuit, becomes a bestseller, etc. So the whole film is looking at this writer's like conflict of interest. He could make a lot of money if he decides to accept this book deal, but he would in his mind be a complete sellout. He would become the butt of his own joke. Ah, 
So the book that he writes is called My Pathology, with an F, because he thinks that's more ghetto, and he does it under a pseudonym. So we see this identity crisis play out, but in very comedic terms. So some of the funniest scenes are watching the hysteria with which the white publishers greet this objectively quite ridiculous book. And for instance, he ha- when he has his first call with the publishing house, uh, his agent is like, you've got to put on like a stereotypically like black voice because the- Thelonious is from a middle class, like quite a wealthy family. He has a, you know, just, he doesn't have a ghetto accent. The name is definitely a highbrow reference as well. If you're saying his name is Thelonious, but he's also known as Monk because Thelonious Monk was like a really iconic American jazz pianist and composer. Right. He's like yes. a central figure to the kind of jazz movement so maybe that nickname is coming from that and so we watched that very we watched uh jeffrey wright like put on uh this ridiculously stereotypical voice which kind of just includes saying the n-word at various points and jeffrey wright plays thelonious monk yes and what else is jeffrey wright in so he plays bernard lowe in westworld ah and he's in batman as well he's been in loads you'll recognize him definitely and he's up for best actor oscar also in it is Issa Rae, who plays the kind of rival writer who's written We Lives in the Ghetto. So throughout the film, they make fun of the fact that white critics, and I feel like this is very true because I always see this in journalism, I'm sure you have as well, of whenever white critics are like very earnestly praising black art, they will often use the same words, which is, it's raw, it's urgent, <laughs> it's biting, it's searing. And in fact, even reviews of American fiction have used that. And so I'm like really aware of it now. <laughs> How meta. Yeah. So when at one point there's this very funny scene where Thelonious is so scared that this book is actually going to go through this deal that they're actually going to pay him three quarters of a million quid and is like going way beyond what this joke was meant to be. So he's trying to essentially um, derail the deal oh, in any way he can. So he doesn't make it a piece of avant-garde performance art no I think he's just like what the hell is going on like I'm actually going to become a best-selling writer at this rate like I just want to I want to do it I want to make it as difficult as possible for them to actually go through with this so he calls up his the publishers uh and goes I'm going to rename the book from my pathology to fuck and then there is two really earnest white people being like okay um mm, let's just think about this and then they think about it and they're like that is just so raw <laughs> and then they're like let's do it and they get really excited and it's published as fuck. So it's that constant making fun of tropes within the publishing industry, which called Jefferson, the director, has very much lifted from his own experience. It also sounds very yellow face. Yes, it is that, just a lot funnier. So that's a satire of the publishing industry that was published last year that I think was one of the most talked about books of the previous year. Yes, exactly. It's very similar to that. So called Jefferson, who struggled to get the film made because 95% of people who saw the script turned it down, probably because it's quite uncomfortable for white people to watch it has said that he was reacting specifically against the same types of stories you always see in which black trauma is front and centre, specifically slavery, civil rights era. Mm. And he says, the reason is these white audience members are allowed to watch those and think, okay, well, that depiction of race doesn't harm my self-image because I'm not burning a cross on anybody's lawn. I don't own slaves. I'm not a racist. Whereas this film, like, you cannot go and see it as a white person and not feel like you either know someone who has behaved exactly in this way or been guilty of it yourself. And Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. It's like excavating white fragility. Yes, it's totally that. And it's a really strange experience going to watch it. Like you feel uncomfortable laughing because 
you are still laughing at racial stereotyping, even if you are laughing at the white people who are doing it rather than the black receivers. And then also you don't want to laugh too hard because... It's clearly designed to be confronting. Exactly. So Otego Wagba, who is a black writer who's written really great business books, particularly around money. She also did the Issa Rae cover story for Mr. Porter recently. She did. And she said she really related to parts of the film because Theonius Monk, for instance, at one point walked through the bookshop Barnes and Noble. And it's like, why is my novel that has nothing to do with race in African-American studies? And he picks up his books and is like, put them in in fiction or whatever. And Otego Wagwa has said that her business book, We Need to Talk About Money, was put in race studies when it's like a business book. That is bizarre. Right, Hans, who else here feels inexplicably overwhelmed by a silent rage at the sound of somebody loudly crunching on crisps at their desk? Or heavy breathing like a wounded wildebeest. Or snivelling incessantly on the tube. Or clacking their acrylic nails on a keyboard. Ah! I mean, we could go on, couldn't we, babe? But no, you are not a psychopath. If common sounds make you feel suddenly furious, you might just have something called misophonia. Yeah, so to explain, guys, our ears are shaped like shells. So the sound we receive is actually always distorted about 20%. Most people's brains filter that out. But if you're like Els and I, then you're going to need a bit of a helping hand. And you have to get yourself a pair of Karma earbuds from our absolute faves at Flare Audio. They have stopped severe bouts of violence. They are so tiny, comfy and super unobtrusive. Much better than noise cancelling headphones, which shut you off from sounds you actually need to hear. And don't just take our word for it. They've sold 2 million pairs since the launch and lockdown. Yeah, and even if you don't have misophonia, they can help with so many annoying and sharp sounds to just take the edge off, help keep you calm. You know, if you're working in a cafe, something like that, you've got to head to Flare Audio to get your pair now for $19.95. Thank you to Flare. So, Core Jefferson also said that when he was a journalist, he was constantly asked to write about black trauma. He wrote an article called The Racism Beat, where he explains why he was essentially always asked to write about, like, so-and-so has been stabbed in this black neighborhood. And then, similarly, in Hollywood, Core says, it was people asking me, do you want to write this movie about a teenager being killed by a police officer? Do you want to write this movie about a slave? He once got a script note from a Hollywood executive that he said that said he needed to make a character blacker. God. Paul Jefferson said that one of his black scriptwriter friends had a meeting and said she wanted to write rom-coms. They phoned her three hours later and said, we've got this story about a blind slave who, thanks to a wealthy white benefactor, learns to play the piano and becomes a piano prodigy. Are you keen? Oh, for God's sake. And it's just like, you couldn't... She wants to write rom-coms. Yeah. I think what is what was actually difficult making the film for Cord Jefferson was some of the real life experiences he was drawing from were so beyond parody that they were almost too ridiculous to put in the film. He had to make them a bit less. He had to dial down. They felt absurd. Yeah, he had to dial down real life experiences God. because they felt too absurd. I can imagine. So interestingly, it has been reading. That, that interesting text. Oh God. <laughs> so what has been incredibly enlightening has been (laughs) reading some of the criticism from black writers a couple of the black critics have said that the work is just sharing more traumatic stories that white liberals can feel proud of themselves for engaging with on quite a surface intellectual level a bit like what cord was saying with the slavery films they can still look at these despicable white industry execs and distance themselves from yes. them and be like i would never do that and not um, actually yeah. interrogate like the daily microaggressions that they might be responsible for and the daily beasts kindle cunningham said that american fiction isn't as good as it thinks it's hard not to question theonis monk's discomfort in consuming stories that don't mirror his own and she wanted in fact the same ridicule applied to him 
that is applied to the cringe white liberals because she found it really disturbing that Monk, he didn't value stories of black trauma because they also do have their place and mm. are valid and do exist like not everyone is middle class and wealthy and oh it doesn't have to be intellectual to be of value exactly and him and this rival writer played by Issa Rae have a really interesting kind of just debate about this halfway through the film but it just basically you just come away from it being like oh my god was that really funny or actually is it too real to be funny and should I laugh is it should I not laugh what's the general audience reception been like generally everyone has said it is excellent four or five stars everyone's loved it it's been nominated for loads of Oscars but there have been a few essays where I've seen people being like this is just yet again more good white liberal back patting right like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Haha, yes we can we know we're so self-aware that's why we're laughing because we know this is what we're in on the joke actually yeah. it's like no no you are the subject of the joke yes or even knowing that you're subject to the joke and therefore feeling proud of yourself for knowing that you're the subject of the joke. But also it's still quite passive because just laughing at that does nothing. I don't know. It definitely brings up a lot of meta questions, doesn't it? I'm it gonna does. watch it. I think it sounds really I think it, thought-provoking. And, yes, and actually the best scenes are the ones where Theonis Monk is seen with his family and just very moving scenes of domestic conflict that have nothing to do with race. Like his mum's really ill and he's got problems with his brother and uh, problems with his relationships. And those are really important to showing that, yeah, well, he does have loads of issues, but they're not about race. So I really recommend it. Since cinemas, I'm sure it'll come to streaming. Funnily enough, I have an article recommendation for you this week that really feels relevant mm. to this film. I didn't pick it for that reason. I picked it because it feels extremely relevant to our constant struggle of trying to be creatives and not loving the personal branding side. Oh, as anyone who follows yes. our personal Instagrams will know, we do struggle a little bit with that side <laughs> not of much is being going on there. Creatives. <laughs> an article in Vox, which was literally titled Everyone's a Sellout Now. really relevant I think it's by Rebecca Jennings who is a senior correspondent covering social platforms in the creator economy she's been at Vox since like 2018 exploring like the rise of TikTok internet aesthetics the pursuit of money and fame online so she's got a really big picture view the whole piece starts with someone who's shopping around their book proposal so the opener is when Rachel K. Albers was shopping around her book proposal the editors at a big five publishing house loved the idea the problem came from the marketing department which had an issue she didn't have a big enough following with any book but especially non-fiction ones publishers want a guarantee that a writer comes with a built-in audience of people who already read and support their work and crucially will fork over 20 seven dollars a typical price for a new hardcover book when it debuts it was ironic considering her proposal was about what the age of the personal brand is doing to our humanity albers 39 is an expert in what she calls the online business industrial complex the network of hucksters vying for your attention and money by selling you courses and coaching on how to get rich online she's talking about the hustle bro gurus flaunting rented red lamborghinis and promoting shady passive income schemes yes but she's also talking about the bizarre fact that her 65 year old mum, who's an accountant is being encouraged by her company to post on linkedin to build her brand oh my gosh and it's basically the next i just have to keep reading from this because honestly especially so the other night we must tell the huns about colmer's caloria we went out for a couple of drinks we we were literally talking about this and then the article dropped a couple of days later shared by someone in threads with the caption the death of the writer is officially here so this next paragraph i think captures this beautifully and it shows why it's relevant to every single one of our honeys listening it's not just a journalist issue 
The internet has made it so that no matter who you are or what you do, from nine to five middle managers to astronauts to house cleaners, you cannot escape the tyranny of the personal brand. For some, it looks like updating your LinkedIn connections whenever you get promoted. For others, it's asking customers to give you five-star reviews on Google reviews. For still more, it's crafting an engaging but authentic persona on Instagram. And for people who hope to publish a bestseller or release a hit record, it's building a platform so that execs can use your existing audience to justify the costs of signing a new artist. We like to think of it as the work of singular geniuses whose motivations are purely creative and untainted by the market. This, despite the fact that music, publishing and film have always been for profit industries where formulaic churned out work is often what sells the best. These days, the jig is up. That's so true. Isn't it? I hadn't actually thought about how it it extended beyond our writer world. Yeah, it literally does Mm. extend to the waiter in the restaurant who asks you to go on TripAdvisor and name him in the review. So true. And even the fact that more and more now we're seeing like farmers become famous on tiktok or those jobs that you would never thought would become part of the social media ecosystem totally and the piece really engages with this idea that now young people especially know that whatever they are doing whatever their area of expertise is if you can have a great online platform like that you will be able to make money from that like that is actually now how we all make money by monetizing the self so they talk about the history of the personal brand in this piece as well which i thought you'd like and i also thought the huns that enjoyed sick of myself which we spoke about recently would find very fascinating so the 1997 august september cover story of a magazine called fast company was the brand called you with um the gist basically being if you're not building your personal brand a term that was coined by the author you're already being left behind by the new economy one where career success isn't defined by moving up the corporate ladder but by individual growth and self-promotion There is no one right way to create a brand called you, writes Tom Peters in The Kicker. Except this, start today or else. I know. Those words sent shivers through my heart. 1997, the sentiment was rather unfashionable at the time, if not for the white collar workers reading Fast Company, then certainly for the young people who would eventually enter their world. If there was a decade defined by its obsession with authenticity and artistic purity, it's the 90s, an era where trying too hard or caring too much about anything was embarrassing and where selling out was the ultimate sin. So Chuck Klosterman is also quoted here from his essay collection, The 90s, and he defines the term selling out as not someone who sells something in order to get rich, but someone who compromises their values to do so. I think what's interesting here is that all creatives essentially are pushing against their own values when they heavily self-promote. Because really the reason that you wanted to create art, whatever that is, whether that's a song, a poem, a photo, a piece of writing, you're doing it because you enjoy doing that work, not all the shameless shouting that kind of comes with it. Because of social media, you know, Tom Peters' kind of prophecy has been fulfilled. So all these mass layoffs, stagnant wages, general disillusionment with corporate work, entrepreneurships become like increasingly attractive for young people who would much rather be their own bosses. Mm, But that, as you say, feeds into a kind of individualism and narcissism. Yeah. And again, they touch on publishing. She says, take publishing where there are only five major companies who control roughly 80% of the book trade. Fewer publishers means heavier competition for well-paying advances and fewer booksellers thanks to the consolidation by Amazon and big box stores means that authors aren't making what they're used to on royalties, despite the fact that book sales are relatively strong. The problem isn't that people aren't buying books. It's that less money is going to writers. Yeah. I really see a big thing in reviews that critics will pick up on if a writer has clearly written this to be optioned for the big screen. Exactly that. But I also don't blame them because you have to think that way if you want to make a viable income. Because oh, totally. If, if your book doesn't get optioned for TV or film, you're not going to make a, a living. No. And this piece touches on exactly what we've been discussing in terms of criticism, arts criticism, mm. particularly with music. You've obviously written brilliant about this in your newsletter. A, side note, as we've seen, 
literally two weeks ago, Condé Nast folded Pitchfork into GQ, which so is really sad. sad. And yeah. I think it's very indicative of how much we're losing smart, well-edited and fact-checked criticism. But that's because criticism now has lost all its relevancy. So the writer here talks about the New York Times, for instance. A New York Times review used to literally create overnight hits, while now it barely moves the, the needle, agents say. So this model of the culture industry is just so different now. So true. I mean, even in publishing now, I think what moves copies is probably book talk rather than journalists giving a five-star or one-star review in a paper. Book talk, oh, definitely. Like publishers are now paying people on Instagram, oh, sorry, on TikTok to review books, which is also really problematic because then it cannot really be authentic. Although I've seen a lot of TikTokers saying that they will not change their opinion for money but they're yeah. still getting paid there must i mean from a business perspective that has to there must have be some sway something another very interesting writer who is quoted is william Dere- i'm so sorry i'm going to butcher this william derezowicz he's the author of the death of the artist how creators are struggling to survive in the age of billionaires and big tech and he points to this evolution of the artist but the kind of tension that there now is is where the artist has to be the business manager the writer has to be the publisher so suddenly the creatives that are doing well are the people who can do both they're the ones that now succeed if you can be really good at self-promotion as well as your craft you're going to be successful it's kind of like you said even if your book's not that good so they talk about how this tension plays out in day in the life videos for example where the authors and the artists that are most expect are successful online are the people that can make what is ultimately a boring job look interesting so the act of writing is dull author content creators succeed though by making visually interesting content out of uninteresting days of labor typing at a laptop like it's actually not interesting to watch someone write at all but they'll put like cottagecore-esque like slants to their videos of them sipping tea by the fireplace and waking up in a forest cabin and you know it's all got to be romanticized yeah and the reality is they've gone on a three-day retreat uh out of their 365 days where most of them are spent writing in their terrible low-lit yeah exactly it's deeply unsexy but they're billing it as this like romantic ideal of the solitary genius and that's how you have to package yourselves for people to actually want to consume you it's so true and I think we kind of touched on it on our Dolly Alderton episode is that in the UK publishing industry at least it is so incestuous uh, and it is so tied to your personal brand and your contacts that really mediocre to shit pieces of writing are selling a lot of copies and getting a lot of love in the media and online simply because of the writer's personal brand and their contacts. I remember that being an issue even when we started at GQ, like in the final halicon days of lifestyle magazine publishing people like the guy liner were being commissioned i mean he did write a very funny dating column yeah. but he was commissioned because he had a big tiktok uh, twitter following at the time oh yeah remember him yes yes although as you say he is actually quite good yes but he was very much mm. chosen because they could guarantee that his personal audience would come to that piece and i remember it was a massive tension when um when jim chapman was brought on at, at gq as a columnist as a watch columnist because it was like, oh my God, are we now getting influencers and YouTubers to do our, to do work? Because he wasn't a writer. And it was all like tween girls that would actually click through to it as well, which in itself felt a bit incongruous because it was like, this is meant to be a men's style column that's targeting gents in their late 20s and 30s. And actually it's like tween girls who love Jim Chapman, they're reading it. And from an advertising point of perspective, that doesn't actually make sense because these are not potential buyers teen girls are not going to be buying the whatever Audemars Piguet watch that he's writing yeah, about literally. And, and I think that was a massive issue as well is that Cheeky was like oh my god are people like Jim Chapman going to steal our advertising but then 
that kind of wore thin and that fell through as well. And Jim Chapman, I don't think, is particularly successful anymore, is he? I mean, I never hear about him. I actually sat next to him at lunch a couple Did of you? years ago and he was telling me about the film he had screenwritten and wanted to direct that's not something I ever want to hear about personally and I haven't heard much about it since you did mention that and I will move on (laughs) (laughs) I think what I loved about this piece is it captures the tension that we've talked about so much just with one another and so I figure it must be interesting for the honeys as well which is just how much effort is actually required to promote yourself online and yet we're all made to feel that you're a failure if you don't do it like a posting consistently is of course super important but also there's like tedium and skill that comes into that as the writer puts in the vox piece more than that you've actually got to spend your time doing this stuff on the off chance that the algorithm picks it up and that people care about what you have to say you've got to spend your time doing this even though it's corny and cringe and your friends from high school or college will probably laugh at you as you try to become an influencer you've got to do it even though you feel like you have absolutely nothing to say because the algorithm demands you post it anyway you have to do it because you're from a culture where doing any self-promotion is looked upon as inherently negative or if you're a woman for whom bragging carries an even greater social stigma than it already does you've got to do it even though the coolest thing you can do is not to have to and it's like when we've said how artists as in musicians hate now sharing interviews from well-known publications because they want to look like someone just happened to do an incredibly expensive shoot with them yes they want that they didn't even notice barely because a lack of effort and well it's that gen z aesthetic isn't it of not being too polished now instead of having like a perfectly beautiful plate of uneaten food you show the bits with the gravy slapped all yeah. over the plate and everything looks gross I thought this bit again I'm literally reading the whole piece but honestly every line I was like furiously logic it continues you've got to offer your content to the hellish overstuffed harassment laden uber competitive attention economy because otherwise no one will know who you are in a recent interview with The Guardian, the author Naomi Klein said the biggest change in the world since No Logo, her 1999 book on consumerism and inescapable branding, since it came out, it's that neoliberalism has created so much precarity that the commodification of the self is now seen as the only route to economic security. Plus, social media has given us the tools to market ourselves nonstop. I think that's what's really interesting when we think about the new generation, but also the barriers to entry. So you've got to do it, even though the people that are rewarded for putting themselves out there are most often the same people that society already awards. So mm-hmm. we have this idea that so social media is like super democratic but actually algorithms are biased against poor people against people of color against people who don't conform to patriarchal society norms and the piece finishes saying there are plenty of people who view this as a good thing as in people doing their own self-promotion online a society made up of human beings who have turned themselves into small businesses is basically the logical endpoint of free market capitalism anyway to achieve the current iteration of the american dream you've got to shout into the digital void and tell everyone how great you are all that matters is how many people believe you sums it all up so perfectly doesn't it it's highly depressing isn't it yeah it is depressing and I think that line in particular really captures it like this is the logical end point of free market capitalism such a lonely existence everyone bringing their own little siloed off business competing with others in much the same vein as we've talked about with personal journalism we haven't really taken into account what that does to the soul like making money off your true self it's a bit questionable like making money out of who you are rather than what you do is always going to be a bit of a quagmire yes that is exactly it Cathers to finish guys I want to quickly wax lyrical about how much I'm loving Netflix's One Day go on highly anticipated yeah so it's come out for anyone listening bright and early on a Thursday it's out today yeah how exciting 
So it's adapted, obviously, we know this from David Nichols's best-selling book one day that came out in 2009, sold 5 million copies. I loved the book when it came out. I really loved the book. I think it's so beautiful and I loved the time jump, but the conceit of having the same day, so St. Swithin's Day being the day that it picks up on the one day. Thought that was very clever narratively. I wouldn't say that it's my all-time favourite book, though, so Pandora Sykes always called it her favourite book. Yes, I wouldn't say, no, I I mean... And she rereads it every year, once a year. And I wouldn't say that I have that much love for it. Like, I read it once, you know, a decade ago, and I probably wouldn't pick it up again. But I still think it's a fabulous story. Yes, I certainly wouldn't call it one of the great works of literature, but it was really fun. And it works way better as a TV show than it did as a film. The Anne Hathaway. Yes, I must. Classic. I, I went back and watched some of that because I was like, wow, it got pilloried in the press because Anne Hathaway had the most terrible Yorkshire accent. It was a really bad Yorkshire accent, yes. that was it. Why on earth they would choose Anne Hathaway? I don't know. It's so bad. Also, I feel like that was peak, like, Hathahate period. Yeah, bless her. Oh, my God. Did you see the funniest video of her the other day where she was telling a crowd, I think, in Italy to oh, calm to down? St- to stand back yeah. as well. She's asking... Come. Yeah. <laughs> and and she's literally... It's like, why is she acting like the, the Queen of Genovia? <laughs> she's like, literally... Anyway, Emma, who is a working-class girl from Yorkshire who falls in love with Dex, who is middle to upper class, very privileged has never had to work for anything in his life. And the, the it kind of twins their lives over 20 years. As Katha says, we get an update on the same day every year on the 15th of July. St. Swithin's Day. Yes. And it begins with the night of graduation at Edinburgh University and then go up to Arthur's seat together, which is super cute. And it ends in the early aughts. So tell me all about Netflix's version then. Who's playing who? I've seen the first episode and that's it. So. so as we have a running theme on this podcast, hot leading men, it's all about them this year. It is. He's not an unlikely one though. He's actually a cookie cutter. Very cookie cutter. Good old Leo Woodall, whose breakout role was in White Lotus. He was the one that gave his uncle a good shagging in episode <laughs> five. Didn't know how you're going to explain that, but yes. He is 27 years old. He's from Hammersmith. He grew up in a family of actors. He has literally said himself that he is fairly posh middle class. His granddad worked for the Draper's Company. I tried to Google it. I still don't understand what Draper's Company is. I think it was like a religious society of Drapers that then became something more powerful and... I have a really random fun fact for you. Oh, go that's on. pegged to the White Lotus that I'm just going to have to jump in Oh, go in on, with, tell me. Which Tom Hollander, who plays said uncle. Absolutely love him. Spoke recently about a mix-up where his agent accidentally sent him a cheque that was meant for Tom Holland. Oh, God. I way prefer Tom Hollander. I love a bit of Tom Hollander. Have you ever seen Rev? I don't know. He, where he plays a vicar. It's one of the cutest shows ever. Really recommend. Anyway, sorry for that. No, that's just a total side note. I just desperately want to know what the figure is. It was a seven-figure bonus check. A bonus seven figures. It was his first box office bonus. Not the whole box office bonus, the first one. And as Tom Hollander said, it was more money than I'd ever seen. We're in the wrong industry, Cuthers. If only we could just become Hollywood actors, that would be much easier. (laughs) (laughs) So Leo Woodall first wanted to be a stuntman, then a PE teacher. He has got a good bod, He does. And it was after watching Peaky Blinders that he decided to go and study acting, like his whole family. His like great-great-great-grandma was a silent era actress. That makes me feel old, because I'm like, how old was he when he was watching <laughs> Peaky Blinders? Yeah, I know God. What you mean. 
And until until White Lotus, he had literally been in two episodes of The Vampire Academy and one episode of Holby City. So real punt from Mike White to just bring him in. I mean, yeah. very good punt. And he actually auditioned for one day while still filming White Lotus. And apparently there was a very funny moment where the casting directors had a very stressful moment seeing um, Jack's, his character, Jack and White Lotus, his cowabunga neck tattoo. Do you remember that? He had like a massive tattoo on his neck saying cowabunga. God, no. And they thought it was real. And they were like, ah! And he's like, no, don't worry. I can peel it off. So I think he is the cheeky chappy that he portrays in the white lotus and one day which i think are so if you haven't read one day by the way guys dex is meant to be like a really charming ladies man yeah so when he gets together with emma yeah at the at the graduation yeah she's actually clocked him like for years and he's known as the heart club on campus whereas he has no idea who she is yes exactly and i think he is very much that cheeky heartthrob vibe it's great casting it's great casting he literally says of himself i do have that troublemaker reckless side that jack and the white lotus has and that um dex has in one day that does not surprise me so apparently during the white lotus shagging scene he filmed his brother's reaction because i mean most people would be mortified right but he just filmed people's reactions to it and who plays emma so ambika mod plays emma she was amazing and this is going to hurt the junior doctor's drama adapted oh, from Adam yeah. she was so good in that. She's, she's his junior doctor isn't she yes on the Obson Gyno ward in uh, a hospital in London she plays Shruti her yeah, storyline is just I mean I won't say what happens but the emotional gut punch of her story arc she is also in I Hate Susie for two episodes of season two, she's the runner. You know when Billy um, Piper's character Susie is on the talent show? I don't because I've never seen season two. Oh, yeah, because it's too depressing crazy. for you. I must go back. She is 28 years old, born in Hertfordshire. Her breakout role, as I said, was This Is Going To Hurt. Her parents are Indian immigrants. Her mum's an accountant. Her dad's a vet. She studied at Durham and then got her break doing lots of comedy there and doing stand-up in London. And fun fact, she worked in the finance department of Condé Nast. Oh, that's random. Yeah. So what is really sweet is that David Nichols was very keen himself on casting Ambika. He said he'd seen her and this is going to hurt. And also she had a very Emma quality, a kind of watchfulness and wisdom that I thought was very Emma. And also what's really sweet is that Ambika has said she was um, bullied at school, which I think does tally with Emma's storyline in one day where she's kind of a nobody she and very much like overlooked. She reject a bit yeah. more. Yeah. And uh, people would come and tell Ambika, you look ugly. I just can't believe that. At school? Yeah. God, but kids are just so mean. Leo Woodall. I can believe that, knowing how awful. Yeah, no, you're right. Are. I actually can believe that. Leo Woodall had a similar situation that he was bullied, but he was beaten up and people threatened to snap him. Gosh. And so he went through a really low period where he shaved off his eyebrows, constantly had a hood up, changed the way he spoke and went through a very low lost period. Smoked a lot of weed, worked in a bar. I wonder if part of that is what's informed both of them pursuing acting. So yes, Maya Erskine actually says in the Guardian piece I touched on earlier, Maya Erskine being the actress in Mr. and Mrs. Smith that we were discussing at the start mm-hmm. of this episode, she said she's done a lot of therapy about why she felt the need to like be seen as an actor. That being an actor is about some lack that you have in yourself from when you're younger, trying to kind of prove your worth or be seen or be appreciated and adored. A personal revenge. Exactly. Yes. And I do think their chemistry is really good. You yeah, really believe, I agree, actually. Yeah. Having only seen the first episode, I think it's really believable. They're both brilliant, like in equal measure. 
And what I really love as well is just the 90s nostalgia, the music, the seeing them, you know, always contacting each other with their landline. I really miss having a landline. The burger landline in the first episode. I was like, God, I remember novelty landlines. Well, just I remember when I was when I used to go on a holiday, I would my best friend Elsa, I would write her letters. That was how we communicated. We did not text. We wrote each other letters all the way through the summer. That's I do miss that. One thing I have to say that I forgot how annoying I found Emma in the novel. She is meant to be very judgmental, constantly like wearing her learning on her sleeve. I think because it's an insecurity thing, she feels so much less in Dexter in terms of wealth and class that she constantly wants to have her one up on him by making him feel stupid. But it's so unbearable to watch. And she is just a very unlikable, annoying character in many ways. Ooh. which I think is, it's, she's meant to be like that. And obviously he's insufferable, but in a much more um, obvious way. I think we've seen so many of his kind of like insufferable types before, like the the posh twat who's Oblivious, like... Oblivious, entitled yeah. guy. But seeing a someone who is just so annoying <laughs> on like a personality level... Did that not make you not want to watch it? Question. Because <laughs> sometimes when someone's that annoying, it makes me unable to continue. I think also because it reminded me of myself in some ways constant wisecracking because you feel awkward and insecure I've definitely done that before and you're like stop making jokes all the time (laughs) so irritating and that is a huge theme not only just with Emma but all her boyfriends all work in comedy and like you can't have a normal yeah like Ian and you can't have a normal conversation without them like cracking a joke that is my worst yeah I hate overly labored forceful jokes inserted into conversation I constantly. hate it and then you have to smile and laugh and it's, it's like so draining dad jokes vibes isn't it when it's I like do love constantly joke, cracking the obvious joke exactly and it is such a male tendency and you always hear about it from women who date comics is that like it's an insecurity I don't think I could go out with a comic I actually don't no I would I find natural unintended comedy most funny like a good uh, old falling over <laughs> I can't not laugh if I watch someone fall over. I'm sorry. Schnadenfreude over there. <laughs> it's funny though. It's physical comedy. I find physical comedy quite funny. Like this is how lame I actually am. But there's one video that I've been laughing to myself about constantly for the last two weeks. Oh yeah, what? Which is literally a TikTok of a cat smelling a dog's breath and the cat's facial expression after it smelt the breath. Like it gets closer. They're lying on the bed. They obviously yeah. look like brother and sister you know what I mean they live in the same family and the owner is obviously filming them lying on the bed just having a chill and the cat kind of gets a whiff of something near the dog's mouth and kind of you can see the cat thinking what on earth's that and it gets closer and gets closer and sniffs right in the dog's mouth <laughs> then its face as it turns away is literally like the- <laughs> like it felt so human so you guys didn't see but it's like the disgust on that cat's face was it's- more human than any Oscar-worthy acting that I can recall seeing. Yes, I love watching oh, videos where you good. see a cat like slipping on something and then like a mad chain of like chain reaction happens all throughout the room of like different objects flying. <laughs> so what was your favourite thing about the series? If you had to pick one reason that we all need to go away and watch it, binge the whole 15 episodes this weekend, what is it? It made me feel young again, Cathers. It made really? me feel like I was watching the first throes of love and that I was kind of there with him 
I mean, the deep irony of that is 1998, you would have been, what, like four? It's not like that was your youth and you're looking back on the the early noughties. Like, you were literally a toddler (laughs) where the series starts. No, I mean, just like, oh, they were so... I mean, watching them being young, like 18, 19, 20. Oh, like the care. Yeah. and The innocence of youth. And and feeling like you can make so many mistakes because your life is still ahead of you. I think that is the main issue of turning 30, as much as I love it in many reasons, is you're suddenly like, I've run out of road for the kind of trial period. To be devil's advocate though, age ain't nothing but a number. Anyway, watch it. It's just pure romance. However, uh, when I talked to male colleagues about it, one of them said it's like wading through porridge, so... Again, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but having only seen the first episode, it certainly didn't light me on fire. I preferred Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes, way preferred Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But in terms of just something really cute and lovey-dovey and for like pretending that you're in a relationship with Leo Whittle, which I think was my (laughs) main motivator for watching it, then it's good. Love it. And also it's in like beautiful locations. Yes. The cinematography is lovely. Mm, His gorgeous home. Even the very first opening scene is like like a bird's eye view of Edinburgh. Like almost a drone shot, and it's just yes. really gorgeous. And Arthur's and it's got this seat. beautiful, like sunset sky, pinky, a visual treat. Yeah. Also, the only, the episode's only like twenty five to thirty minutes long, which is nice. Mm. You can gobble through them. So, guys, hope you enjoyed our episode today. Hope you enjoyed, honeys. Do shoot us a DM as ever at Straight Up Pod. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about next time. Let us know any thoughts, feelings. We've had yet more incredible emails from you, honeys, about our big kids question special, which don't worry, you're not too late for thought on motherhoods, guys. We are recording that episode, I think, in like two weeks. The mythical. The mythical episode. episode. So any thoughts, welcome within the next week still. It's the big foot of the publishing industry. <laughs> please rate, review, subscribe on Apple. Haven't had any uh, reviews in the last week, so could someone please... Pop one on there. We'd be ever so grateful. Yes. One a day would be good. Help us build our personal brand. Yes, help us build our <laughs> personal, personal brand. Come on, guys. Okay, bye. 